if it is to be said, so it be, so it is. This is Even Star Waco, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we travel to the gilded halls of Logan Roy as we discuss the final season of Secession. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bob. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Honeymoon States, <laughs> episode four of Secession's final season. But first, our spoiler warning we will be spoiling all of Secession up to the most recent episode. So, Emily, to open up today's conversation, I want to ask you, have you been hated by everyone in a room like Greg was in this past episode? <laughs> um, I think I feel like it almost doesn't need to be a question with my personality in particular, um, but I have been so often. Not in the way that Greg is, though. Greg is like watching Greg makes me want to kill myself derogatory, whereas I think the reasons I've walked into a room and been totally hated make me want to kill myself marginally affectionately. Um, and and <laughs> watching that was just like i felt like if tom in episode one was like becoming powerful and becoming kind of like a guy worth knowing greg is like on the opposite arc and is just rapidly becoming like the guy absolutely fucking nobody in the universe ever wants to be near i feel like you probably have never had the experience in your life of walking into a room and being totally hated but like for the rest of us with like odious personalities like greg is doing this the wrong way like we all know how the right way to do this is and he's doing it wrong <laughs> yeah i mean that's maybe true i don't know i have been in a room where it's all other white people and just me so there might be something uh, there fair. but no people people generally like me unlike you <laughs> no just kidding um but yeah um i um Man, uh, Greg Greg is interesting because um, I don't want to miss out on this. Uh, Nicholas Braun is kind of revealing himself to be a shithead. Um, there are a bunch of stories about him like not being great with women. Um, and he also just says some weird, insensitive stuff. Um, so it's kind of, I don't know, fitting that his arc on the show is also becoming more pathetic <laughs> and more unlikable. Uh, because he... He doesn't even have the conviction or like he's not earnestly a piece of shit. He's just trying to be a piece of shit like everyone else around him in this episode. Like the way he's trying to like saddle up to Marsha and like dunk on Carrie, even though the amount of distance between him and Carrie is much smaller than the amount of distance between even him and Marsha, uh -huh. who is herself kind of an interloper in this uh, setting. Um, so seeing him try to suck up to her and just make these like comments that you know if tom made them maybe someone in the room would laugh but no one is paying attention to greg um he can't get any kind of purchase with uh the roy siblings and even when they're like riffing during steven roots like eulogy for logan uh tom is making comments and they're laughing but then every time greg tries to get in on the fun tom's like come on man too far what are you doing <laughs> you know what i i think oh god all right fuck it we're going into insane mode right away i i think the thing that i found really interesting about like kind of the social relations of of the interlopers in in this episode so that's um carrie willa marcia greg and tom um it, is that it reveals the fundamental feudalism of these like of of this scenario of the 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 Roy family and 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 Waystar Ryko because like 
so the people who are succeeding, the interlopers who are succeeding in, in their social relations and, and who are benefiting or, or stand to benefit from um, everything that has just happened, the, the collapse, literal collapse of, of Logan Roy, um, they are the people who have managed to maneuver their way into the family in a, in a feudal way. Um, so Marsha married into it and is now defending her lot as as the estranged, but well, she would say not estranged, but as the wife of, of Logan Roy. And Willa has just married into it. Um, and, and you look at Carrie in contrast to Willa and, and to Marsha, and she never sealed the deal. She never got that marriage. Um, she is kind of the other Boleyn girl, I guess. Um, and, and so she has been blocked out of that feudal relationship. And so now, no matter how much of this sort of capitalist social climbing she is trying to do, this sort of liberal, economically liberal social climbing she's trying to do, she can't, she literally cannot secure the bag because she can't function within that, that sort of feudal, feudal, um, operation. Um, and then you look at Tom, who kind of had his way into the, the the sort of feudalism of it all through his marriage, but that marriage is now on the rocks and and as um and as becomes aggressively clear through his behavior through this whole episode, like it's not really enough to secure him, particularly because he's a man and and not a woman and kind of allowed to just be uh, a secondary figure. And then you've got Greg, who is not married into it at all um, and is truly just a social climber, albeit a sort of in like near, near relevant family. But like, he's kind of like, I mean, he is just like the, the grandson of a lesser Lord, a lesser Prince compared to Logan Roy. And so that feudal, um, safety doesn't really apply to him and he has to act the 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 kind of liberal social climber um and it is really the thing that that secures these people is not their ability to manipulate the markets it's not the sort of um merit of their work ethic or their productivity or or you know the innovative of innovativeness of their output it is whether or not they have you know sold themselves to this feudal setup and 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 it's in a show that is so explicitly about corporate culture and, and corporate America, it is like equal parts jarring and really sort of like um, refreshing, I think, to see the fundamental feudalism of it all laid bare so clearly as it was in this episode. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. You said a couple of great things there. Uh, first, I want to point out that I did not realize that Carrie literally fumbles the bag oh in this God. episode. <laughs> like, that's literally what she's doing. And it's like, perfect. I had never thought about that. Oh. Um, but I think that feudal relationship is so spot on because what's the big transaction this episode? The ancient castle of House Roy gets passed <laughs> down to the oldest son, Connor. And this is, you know, a huge thing, perhaps, for what per for Willa, even though maybe she's not on board with it, but all of a sudden she is in like the house that Logan built. She has the trappings of pop power. She is Theon holding Winterfell or something like that. Like this is like tangible, projectable power, um, or at least a vision or an image that you can project um, that is now very real to uh, Connor and Willa um, and kind of reasserts themselves, maybe not into the same game that the other Roy siblings are playing, uh, but you do um, kind of have that feudal relation because in you know a feudal mode of production, the only real wealth arrives from land ownership. Um, so I think that's very good. And even the way they talk about the business on the table for um, Royco, whether it's ATN or Gojo or Pierce, those are essentially little fiefdoms. We got um, you know literally a Holy Roman Empire because there's a Roman here and <laughs> this whole family is full of holes, I guess. I don't know. I can't carry the analogy further. But I think that is a great way to think about this because 
With the return of Steven Root, who, uh, when we last saw him in season three at the Republican whatever, not the National Convention, but that was a Kingmaker episode. And this is kind of like the death of a King episode. And they're also trying to figure out what do we do with all these little fiefdoms or these little kingdoms that existed that Logan Roy was able to hold together because by sheer force of will, but now is going to be left up to these lesser lords. Some of these are his, you know, direct uh, progeny, his children, his issue. Some of these are like his Castellan and his master at arms and stuff like that in terms of the Franks and the Carls and Jerry's of the world. Yes, yes. And I really like that castle analogy because like, I think the one of the most interesting little bits of this episode to, to me, besides the like shocker of an opener, was um so after Connor has his little spit handshake um deal with with Marsha and we see Willa settling into the fact that she's going to be living possibly probably if Marsha does a backstab them, um she's going to be living in in this manse in this mansion um that once was Logan's and and she says something that is so unbelievable to me um it's just like so laser pointed perfect um and and just a sign of how amazing the writing on the show is but she's talking to her mother and she's saying something and it's really kind of played as an offhand comment but she talks about how you know they're going to need to do something with the walls um to make it more open and and airy um because it's really kind of all you know closed and, and cloistered right now and and i don't think there has ever been a more perfect summation of the difference between Logan Roy's not old money, but sort of old world new money and the new money of the digital generation, which is like, what is the reason that Logan Roy, who is like one of the richest men on earth, has a house that has so many small little rooms in it? Well, it's because he likes to sequester people. He likes to build these walls up. He likes to make people feel like they're trapped and they're lonely. And that's how he's been able to defend their wealth or his wealth even it is because he's been able to block people out into these little rooms, force them into the sort of secrecy and shadows and darkness together. And then by dividing them, he is able to conquer them. And Willa, by contrast, who who is not defending her wealth um, in the same way, is is interested in the sort of public show of and the public display of that wealth. And so she wants to not down these walls so she can fit more people in it so more people can be thrilled and delighted and impressed by the wealth that she has um and and it was just this like little offhand thing um you know in the end i doubt connor and will are ever actually going to live in that house but like it was such a little character moment that i think really kind of just levered open everything about this show and 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 the kind of old money new money um, generational dynamics, generational wealth dynamics at play. And, and, and on the heels of an episode, like episode three, you know, they could have really kind of rested on, on, and on their laurels there and just sort of been like, okay, we wrote one of the best episodes of TV of all time. We're just going to kind of phone it in for this episode. And instead they just deliver so many of these unbelievable character moments, you know, kind of epitomized for me by, by that. Um, and I just like, ah, this show, it really just, it makes my head spin in the best way possible. I think you're onto something with that motif about closed doors and sectioned off rooms because I thought it was very deliberate. Like when the kids are powwowing together about Kendall's, you know, power play, they very visibly show, show the doors closing in that living room, like the window door and the sliding mm -hmm. door. Um, there's a lot of going in and out of the library. They go into the kitchen to observe the chime the China, the coronation demolition derby that they call it. Um, but it's all sorts of like these are all sectioned off, you know, which kind of 
represents the you know separation between these groups the little alienations between them but it's also like no one knows what's behind all these closed doors maybe most of all logan's vault um because that's where the whole will emerges like no one had thought to look behind that door before and when they did they found something that like fundamentally reshifts the whole game that they've been playing so far into the season um and it just they it comes out of nowhere almost and then everyone has to kind of act like oh well this fits into some kind of plan or how they can attach themselves to said plan yes and and you know the idea of doors and windows and their closure or openness um and it, it, the, it you know its relationship to how people fit into the plan you know, Shiv's house, I think, becomes the most interesting thing in the world to me because Shiv literally lives in a glass house. All of her walls are just massive windows. And and so when we start um, this episode off, we have Shiv in her bed, the, the same bed that her and Tom were laying on holding hands at the end of episode one. And she's not looking like she's in a good state. And we're not quite clear on whether or not it's because, you know, her dad just died or if it's something else or if it's everything, you know, all of the above. Um, And then she gets a call. um, And (laughs) our little Chevy is knocked the fuck up and not just like knocked the fuck up, but she's like at least so she's getting a call about um, an amniocentesis, the results of her amniocentesis, which means she's at least 15 weeks pregnant, um, which is not I mean, Okay, I, I will preface this and given the current American climate and how just absolutely deranged uh, U.S. healthcare <laughs> is, like, it's not that far along. But for the rest of the world where, like, we actually have, like, access to abortion and regular healthcare and it's not, like, fucking, uh, you know, there's no fucking clan member standing in the door of our health centers. Like, 15 weeks is actually quite far along. Um, is, is, is a pretty hefty way into a pregnancy. Um, which means, like, it's just so revealing on so many levels. There's, like, so much kind of role there's a domino of domino effect of characterization off of this because it's like when did Shiv get knocked up? Well, probably 15 weeks ago. So by who? By Tom? By someone else? By by someone that's not in the picture? Was it on purpose? Why, if Shiv knew that she was going to leave her husband or that her husband her her marriage was on the rocks, why were they having unprotected sex? If it even was Tom, like is Tom aware that the like whole having a baby thing was like actually in the the cards for them? Because we know they've talked about it at points, but like this is quite a very different thing from like having a nice occasional conversation about it. Um, and and you know I think there's like the I, I, the way that I interpreted this is Shiv did not mean to be pregnant. Um, Shiv did not mean to be pregnant, and just like you know the breakdown of her marriage, which I don't think she also intended, it is happening in this house of glass walls. Um, and 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 there is something so like revealing about the fact that this is where she is choosing to kind of live it out in in front of all, kind of bearing it all. Um, and 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 yet when it, she goes to this far more closed in space that that is you know her father's house, um, that's actually where shit hits the fan in in a real way. Like you know she is a victim of so many of the things that she tries to pretend she would never be a victim of, and and that kind of change of environment I think just feels so. Haha, <laughs> seminal to it all. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot going on with this pregnancy, which the show doesn't try to hit you over the head with. Um, to someone like me, like I was able to kind of piece it together by the vibes of the scene, but like the actual kind of like specific tests they were talking about, um, it really didn't give it away to me. But, you know, between just kind of what's going on, uh, between the fact that I know that Sarah Snook is actually pregnant, you know, kind of also <laughs> helps in this process. Um, and then, of course, the ending, uh, which where Shiv kind of gets boxed out. And I don't think it's specifically 
because of her gender, but it's hard not to look how this episode starts with a focus on her pregnancy and her exclusion at the end to at least see some kind of gendered part to the fact that she's not looped in. Uh, but I wanted to talk about like, you know, who's the father? We can do our little Maury Popovich uh, segment <laughs> or whatever it is, um, because um, I did not really know the timing and structure of the season, which, you know, I want to go through right now is apparently this 10 episode final. So final season is roughly going to be a stretch of 10 consecutive days. It's like the 10 days that shook the world by John Reed on the Russian revolution. But no, but it's essentially, I think like in the first like episode, they said the election was 10 days away. Um, so what they're doing is a really compressed timeline here. Whereas a lot of the other seasons previous to this, have felt like, kind of more of that like Downton Abbey kind of uh, pacing of the story where it feels like events might take place several months apart between episodes. Um, this is like everything's kind of running up against each other. And I think based on the pilot, um, they said it was about three months after where we left season three. Um, so then we're going into this is when like Shiv and Tom were talking about freezing their babies or freezing the sperm or the whatever ovum. I'm not an expert on any of this. Um, but they were talking about freezing in the last couple episodes. Tom wanted to have his like, I excuse this term, but prison anchor baby yeah. so that Shiv possibly wouldn't leave him if he did end up going to jail. And then, of course, they technically also did have an open marriage. Um, it was probably on rocks and uh, neither of them seemed really fuckable halfway through season three. Yeah. But um, this was definitely like there's a lot of variables in play. I think it's probably going to be straightforward and it's going to be Tom. But this couldn't be any messier for how straightforward it might end up playing out. Yeah. And I think it's also it's so it's so Shiv. Like, it's so Shiv. Because, you know, we talked about in the last episode, like, how Shiv can't escape being a woman, no matter what she does, no, no matter how rich she gets, and no matter how close she is to daddy, like, she will never escape the fact that she's a woman in a man's world. And, and like, I think there is no clearer, like, uh, like enunciation of that fact than, than the baby issue. Like, Kendall has kids. Allegedly, Kendall has kids. We have seen them a couple times. But, like, where the fuck are Kendall's kids? And, like, Kendall does not factor his children into any part of this equation. Like, like Kendall has become, in so many ways, but but especially in this, like Logan, in that his kids are just not really a factor in, in anything that he does. Um, and that's fine for Kendall, because, like, Kendall is the man of the, well, the broken house that was, you know, his his marriage, his, his estranged, destroyed marriage. Shiv can't get away from carrying a baby. I mean, she can. Oh, she for sure can. She can definitely get an abortion. Do I think she'll get an abortion? No. Um, but, you know, there is something incredibly, like, physical and incredibly visceral about carrying a child. And, like, now Shiv can't get away from it. Um, and, and also, like, the minute she starts showing, nobody's going to let her get away from it either. And so, like, you know, that scene where she's kind of trying to get her buy-in with her brothers um all i would say all three of them of equal incompetency but like she's trying to get her this buy-in with her brothers and going three-way into the kind of leadership of of the company and i think she's having to come to, having to have her come to jesus over the fact that like she can't buy her way out she can't rich her way out of being being a chick um and this pregnancy means it and 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 this pregnancy is only going to mean in greater and greater ways that like she just can't escape the 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 sort of rules of patriarchy here in the way that her brothers can and in the way that her brothers are enabled to um which is why i think her her little pratfall is interesting um not because i think she was like purposely throwing herself down the stairs as like a way to force a miscarriage but like 
she's not behaving like an expectant mother because I don't think she's wanting to be an expectant mother. And I'm not saying that like pregnant women don't fall. Of course, pregnant women fall. Like it's very hard to walk <laughs> when you're pregnant. Um, but like she fell in a way that like you don't fall if you are carrying yourself with the sort of awareness and, and care and concern for like the child that you may or may not be about to have. Um, and, and that kind of fall, I think, was such like a you know, there's the figurative sense in which she is having her fall from grace. She's literally falling on her face in public. But then there's also this sort of like Shiv is 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 like vulnerable um, physically in a way that we've never seen her be vulnerable before. We saw her be emotionally vulnerable for like in a really big way in the last episode. But this is her like she has hit the limitations of like what patriarchy will allow her to be at a physical level now. And she's going to have to fucking cope with it. Whereas so far as patriarchy is concerned, Kendall can like kill himself or try and kill himself repeatedly. He can have like a crippling drug addiction. He can do X, Y, and Z things to destroy his body, but he will never actually reach that physical limit because he's got the money to pay his way out of it. Shiv, by contrast, has one thing, which is a pregnancy, and she can't buy her way out of it. And and that that is the limit. That is the end of the road for her. And that's so fascinating and strange to put in right after this death. Yeah, no, she I, I thought Snook probably put in the performance of the episode for me um, because a lot of the stuff like she had to like do that small a acting while other people were like more in the spotlight, especially Jeremy Strong in this episode. Mm -hmm. But like her fall, like she falls and then she's immediately getting up um, and then Tom tries to come and help her up and she just pushes him away. Yeah. Um, and she's like, no, like, don't fucking touch me, as I think literally her words, like the only person who might even have any interest in supporting her, even like nominally, not even like full heartedly, um, even she's pushing that away, even her like yelling at people to stop smiling. Um, mm -hmm. It almost feels like a take on the, you know, gendered cat call of, you know, why don't you smile more kind of thing. Um, she is just up against everything, even the uh, possibility of Jared Mencken, presidential candidate coming in. I'm sure his views on women will fit right <laughs> in with the rest of the people in this apartment. Um, so there's like nothing. And I don't think it's it's really, you know, Shiv also has to kind of see it play out with all the other women in this room yeah. um, because Marsha's making a power play and Marsha's doing well for herself, but she has to actively fight for everything she has. She's seeing Carrie get absolutely like just tossed to the curb. Um, even Jerry, you know, like everyone's like, well, dad has soured on Jerry. And like, they realize that everyone's essentially cutting Jerry out in that like library. It's like, she is not going to be a major part of this. I mean, I think she's going to be a major part of the story, but um, it already seems like they're somewhat moving on from her in terms of Waystar Roycoy's CEO. Um, so it's not just that everything is happening to her, um, but it's also happening to all the women around her. And she even speaks about it when it's just Ken and Roman. Um, and, they, you know, Ken's like, we can't include you. We can't do a triumvirate. It seems like special pleading or whatever. And then she immediately genders it because you don't need, you know, my mascara streak face and yeah. I might faint which is something she says right before she falls, which is, of course, um, you know, not quite foreshadowing, but she's almost like proving her own point in a way. Yeah. Um, and it is, again, I don't think it has... I don't think Shiv isn't cut out for this because she's a woman. I think she is, like as we discussed last week, she has shortcomings that she's not aware of, and those shortcomings often end up getting the best of her in so many of these key situations. You know what? I will say, I think Shiv isn't cut out for it because she is a woman. Um, like, I, I think that is the, the... I think this is the fundamental problem of liberal feminism that is being sort of embodied by Shiv right here. But, like, the, the truth is... 
women cannot succeed in in patriarchy in the way that men can. There is always going mm-hmm. to be a limit mm-hmm. on the success that women can have because the world is dictated by patriarchy. Patriarchal capitalism, sure, but like it will only let you go so far. Um, and 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 the roof, the the ceiling, the glass ceiling, if you will, but it's not really glass. It's a fucking hard steel iron ceiling is set by patriarchy. And Shiv is having to learn that no matter how hard she tries, no matter what she does, she will never escape the fact of her being a woman. Um, and she she can't succeed. She cannot succeed in this world. There is no reforming it. There is no working her way up from from you know the the sort of outside in. There is she, she Shivroy cannot be the leader of Waystar Roy Go because she is a woman. And like that is simply the, the like that is the that is the I wouldn't even say unfortunate because in this case it's actually probably fortunate because she's just as big of a moron as her brothers. Hey, equality. Um, you know that is the unfortunate truth of it is that like. Her her success in this world is predetermined by her gender. Um, you know, like her, you know, she is on more or less an equal playing field with re- respect to her siblings by virtue of the wealth. Um, certainly with, um, you know, Roman and and Connor, I would say probably more so than Kendall. They're all going to get a more or less equal due, or or are starting from more or less equal material conditions. The thing that is that then divides Shiv from the rest of them is the fact that she's a woman. So Shiv can't succeed because she's a woman. She just can't do it. Um, and I think this show is doing such a remarkable job of of kind of showing that like um, Shiv is the same as her brothers in 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 the fact that she's just fucking useless. Kendall is also fucking useless. So is Roman. So is Connor. Um, they all have the same amount of money at their disposal. They all allegedly have the same amount of power. The thing that that limits them then is 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 gender. It is Shiv being a woman? And like it is such a nice tidy way of the show saying you just can't fix this. It just is like you know this is all sort of feudal relations papered over by a thin veneer of capitalism. And this is also it's not even really making like um you know it's not really kind of outreaching to like egalitarianism like logan obviously always treated his daughter differently because she was his daughter but like you know there will be no girl boss win to this um and and the limiting thing is is not the boss it's the girl um and and i think it's kind of nice to see that put so so plainly because i think it's some it's a line that like so many shows and movies and books are scared to do because they don't want to be treated like they're saying, oh, women are inherently worse. But like women under patriarchy, yeah, like womanhood under patriarchy is inherently nerfed. <laughs> like the class balance <laughs> is not in our favor in this fucking MMO. <laughs> it just isn't. And like th- you have to reckon with that to to get beyond it. You can't just pretend that like we can somehow like, you know, out out rhetoricize our way through patriarchy like no no like like patriarchal womanhood is just like is just a worse thing that doesn't mean that womanhood for all eternity is going to be a worse thing but like in this instance in capitalist patriarchy it just is it is just the lesser thing um and and it sucks and like that is why we would call for a revolution not a reform like not reforms but like shiv is a reformist (laughs) obviously if that and so she's paying the price for it like sorry chick but like this is what this is what the ends you know, this is the violent ends to your violent delights. Tough shit. Yeah. 
I was really uh, taken by her term saying like during that little powwow with Roman and Ken saying I need to wet my beak um, because first of all, of course, that comes from the Godfather. So haha, I get to make another Godfather reference. <laughs> but also that is very specifically kind of a gender term because the person who wets their beak is usually the Don, the person at the top of the food chain who in a patriarchal Italian kind of you know, it's somewhat pop cultural, but a mafia organization, it is usually the Don, the godfather up top. So she's like projecting herself into the position of the man on top of not even a legitimate business, but by invoking the godfather, you're inherently saying that what you're up to is either criminal or somewhat seedy or, you know, against the grain. So uh, she can't really... She, like you say, she's like, she can't really win here. And the only way she can perceive herself as winning is in roles that are more generally reserved for masculine characters or masculine roles. Um, masculine coded roles, I guess, is the term to talk about here. Um, yes. And, yeah. and I think it's also so interesting that, like, at the end of all of this, at the end of three seasons of jockeying, um, it, it's Kendall who's the successor. Um, it is Kendall who is, you know, I know Shiv's trying to muddy the waters by being like, oh, well, maybe it was, you know, a cross out instead of an underline. It's an underline. It sure, <laughs> it's an underline. It sure shit doesn't say Shiv. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a devastating line. Oh, my God. But that was so good. It's like I both like died for Shiv and also was like, fuck yeah, Ken. It was so good. Um, and just like Sarah Snook in the background, just like making this face. It's a face I recognize so much where she's just like she has been fully put in her place. And then she's out of focus. But you just watch her like as she continues to make a face, go and sit down in an armchair. And it's like some of the best, like you say, lowercase a acting I've seen in so long. But oh, it's just like, you know, I'm always excited to see Shiv get smacked down. There's something kind of cathartic about it. But there was also like I was like gripping white knuckling the table like, oh, my God, please make this stop. Someone kill Kendall right now. Well, let's talk about Kenny here because at the start of the episode, he probably looks the most worse off of the three children. Um, he is the one who's kind of laying on his floor, disassociating like, you know, Kendall does. So maybe that's just like his normal. <laughs> um, but then uh, when his name shows up on a piece of paper, he all of a sudden kind of snaps back into that like deal mode um and ken has never been like a killer as logan would say but he does have some wits about him in the general sense he knows what to do he knows he's got to talk to roman he's got to talk to shiv he's got to get stewie involved um and then he knows frank is his guy amongst the vassal lords like he's the one who's i maybe officially or unofficially Ken's godfather. I'm not sure about that. Um, lowercase godfather, not not the movie this time, <laughs> not the Puzo case. But you can even see, because uh, last week, Frank was the one who was calling Kendall's son when he was trying to talk to the pilot and trying to, you know, be somewhat fatherly to him. And then it looks like Frank's the one who's like, yeah, if you can get the board to stick by this, um, I'll be on board and I can do it. Um, so, like, Ken is a very fascinating uh, character to him and i think my favorite ken interaction and this has almost nothing to do with the rest of ken's story is um tom who is desperate um to like find any kind of ally with logan gone um he first tries uh sucking up to ken and ken just kind of looks at him and smiles like you know what tom i like you good luck oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like yeah you know what we we had a moment like in season three kendall tried to bring tom into his little anti-logan operation of course that all fizzled out but like that was it you know ken's like you know we have a good you know personal relationship otherwise but this you got to do on your own i am no longer looking out for you um hopefully someone will but it doesn't look like anyone is yeah there's just there's something really 
I don't think Kendall, I don't think Kendall is any more competent now than I thought he was an episode ago. Like, I think Kendall is still just as useless as he's been the entire show. But I think there's something really like, it's bleak to look back on the events of the last three seasons and a couple episodes and know that like, the thing that catalyzed all of them, the thing, all of those events, the thing that like, exacerbated the misery felt by everybody both like personally and financially i should add um is the fact that like these two men had a total inability to like interface with each other in just like a normal person way like all kendall wanted was his father to pat him on the back and say good job i love you and logan's inability to do that like meant that he died in indignity and not just the fact that he was apparently fishing his phone out of the shitter but mm-hmm. like the fact that like he was having to go you know go to sweden to kowtow to the third Skarsgård brother like after you know as a part of selling away his life's work his entire empire like if logan had just thrown a fucking ball around with his son once in a while and said good job son um all of this misery would have been totally avoided and like so much of kendall's like uselessness would have also been avoided because we've seen what kendall can operate like when someone occasionally says good job ken um and he's all right you know what i mean i think i still think he's an idiot but he's all right he's definitely playing up to logan's standards like succeeding by logan's standards but like these guys just can't talk to each other normally. And so everybody else has had to suffer for however long the show has has covered in universe terms. Yeah, um, I want to talk about uh, Ken being able to do it because um, kind of the ending to this episode is the fact that uh, Carolina and Hugo come to Rome and Ken and be like, hey, uh, with the transition, do you want to kind of play up your dad? And you guys are what do they call it? Embalming Lenin. Yeah. Um, and like, basically like we're going to parade Logan around as kind of like the figure of all this and kind of, um, you know, the image that we want to project here, or do they want to go kind of scorched earth on Logan instead? Um, and you know, Roman's like, I don't want to shit on my dad. And for just for Roman's sake, I think Ken's like, yeah, let's not shit on dad or whatever. But then he's able to get Hugo at the end to be like, yeah, let's, let's fucking do it. Let's go after him. And his whole, um like what's it called explanation is this is what dad would do um i think a lot about um last season's premiere when uh he's like has to fly to sarajevo because of the possible fbi probe and you know they're like we can and jerry's like pushing logan to cooperate and um logan's like no fuck it we're going full fucking beast um and you can kind of see that kind of emerging in Ken a little bit like he's going to do what his father did I don't know if that's going to go well um usually when you try to replicate um the actions of a I'll just call him a war criminal in this case um things usually don't go well yes um but I do like that this is what Logan is saying Ken didn't have the capacity or wherewithal to be able to do um and to see him possibly in these last four or five episodes try to be logan roy um i think it could be some very satisfying tv yeah and the resuscitation of that killer motif right like i think one of the first and kind of most strident places we saw it in the early seasons of the show was like kendall having scribbled klr on or tattooed rather klr on a homeless man's forehead and like the open question i think in the room was well 
so Kendall Roy, what's the L for? And I, I think we've answered that question now, which is it's Kendall Logan Roy. Um, there's there's no way his his middle name is not Logan. Um, and and he is truly becoming Logan's second man, I think, in this. And that like Kendall is not his own man. He will never escape the shadow of, of his father's name. And so he's now just trying to fully embody his father because even in death, he just cannot escape the the legacy of of his father. And there's something so depressing about it like you know i i I think roman's kind of whole character arc i think is still gonna end up with you know roman being the one left holding the bloody sword when everybody else is dead um and not in a in a victor's way but like you know there's a kind of sadness to roman's story and that like even now roman is chasing after his father's affection and and his father's just dead it's never gonna happen for him but like we thought that kendall had kind of managed to get away from it like we thought that kendall had managed to find you know even as frank says to him like and managed to find some level of fulfillment um outside of you know what his father wanted and and wished for and now she's totally relapsed and he's just nothing again he is he is again nothing and is going to end up as nothing because he's just not dad and he never will be and and i think you know roman probably is going to fall into line behind kendall because roman is just going to be craving that like you know, support from dad, but I don't know that that's going to work in the same way for everyone else, especially not all of the people who are like patently smarter than Kendall, i.e. Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Um, that whole thing with, uh, Frank and Ken, it, sorry to keep going back to the Godfather, but it's the whole, I thought I was out and then they pull me back in, except this is Ken not being able to like quit the game. Um, it's like the whole, um, like kind of a thief trope where it's just like, it's one last score and then I'll be out. Um, and he even talks about that here. He's like, I want to be interim CEO and I want to finish these deals we have on the table. And then he says he wants to get out, um, which I think is, uh, you know, good for him. And I thought a key to really like kind of unlocking Ken in this episode was that kind of solid presence of Stewie in this episode. Uh, Arian Moyad, who I just found oh. out like him and Jeremy Strong had been friends since they were like 19 or 20 years old. Oh, my God. Um, I believe they both came up in like the New York theater um, kind of scoper uh scene uh so like they have like a real rapport together and like when ken is talking to stewie in this episode you actually kind of feel that um like they have jokes between themselves they hug each other and they like hug each other like normally not like the hugs that were given last week when um you know none of the roys knew how to interact physically with another human being um and then you know despite kind of getting fucked by ken in season two uh here here stewie is like to back up his boy um and whether i I know stewie's absolutely in it at some level transactionally um like he thinks ken is the best way to secure his position i'm sure but it is it's wild to actually see ken kind of have people at his back yes yeah and and also just to see that like he hasn't learned a lesson at all like Stewie Mm -hmm, is trying mm -hmm. to have a, you know, it's the great tragedy of the Roy siblings is that like, there are people who obviously want to have some sort of level of emotional intimacy with them that, that exist beyond their wealth and their connection to wealth. Um, And, and yet, despite this, they are all totally incapable of accepting that emotional intimacy without turning it into something related to the family business. Um, I think Stewie and Kendall's interaction was like a really devastating example of this and 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 i think also like just so brilliantly done because of how like how genuine 
Stewie has always seemed the whole way through this show. Like, you know, even though he is the kind of moves maker, money maker, like when Stewie says he's hurt, it's pretty safe to assume that he is actually hurt. Whereas like, I think Kendall in that relationship, it's always a bit, you never quite know if he's being sincere. Mm -hmm, And so like mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. scene was like, especially good because, you know, Stewie continuing to wear his heart on his sleeve, Kendall continuing to do God knows what with it. But I think that in contrast to, Shiv and Tom's conversation on the stairwell um, was like, again, someone reaching out to one of the Roy siblings being like, literally, literally Tom being like, just let me show you some kindness. And Shiv, just like Kendall being like, fuck you, how dare you try and be kind to me? How dare you try and treat me like a human being when it's abundantly clear that I'm not a human being? And it's just like the tragedy of these people. They will never actually be human beings. They've been totally deprived of that by everything around them. Yeah, the earlier interactions of season between like Shiv and Tom, like you can tell there was something between them. But the way Shiv is like, first of all, positioned on that stairwell, like side turned to Tom, like they're perpendicular with each other. She's barely looking him in the eye. And Tom is like saying, I just want to be nice to you. Let me show you some kindness. And Shiv's like, nope, not at all. And it should not be, you know, somewhat surprising that she's later falling because she literally has no one to lean on or support her, even when people have offered. And, you know, Tom's not the best guy. I'm not saying like she should just welcome Tom with open arms. I mean, I would because I love Matthew McFadden, (laughs) but it's not actually, you know, I I understand her um, kind of thought process here. Like I've been petty and kind of standoffish when I feel like I've been jilted in a relationship, but it gets all the more tragic when the baby is most likely Tom's. And at some level, you got to, he at least has to know or get involved to some degree. Um, or you'd think so. I don't know exactly where the latest feminist literature on this kind of pre- pregnancy uh, <laughs> news sharing is, but it just seems like it's kind of like shooting yourself in your own foot. And I like completely get Shiv's impulse to shoot her own foot, but she really, really needs to find someone, whoever it is. Uh, Maybe it's her doctor who calls her on the worst day imaginable (laughs) to tell her the news. Well, so, okay, so I said this on Twitter last night, 90% is a joke, and then as most things, I I ironied myself into it. But I I think there's so much about the setup of the ship and Tom scene that is the Aeon and Faramir book scene to me. Um, and, And, you know, it is... You know, Tom's declaration and hokey and kind of cheesy as it is, um, his whole declaration, uh, well, not really so much a declaration as remember when, remember the first time we fucked and, and, you know, I was being Tom about it and you were like, oh, but I love all of the Tom about this. And, and, you know, that was obviously getting through to Shiv. And, and I think there was this, you know, Shiv is perpetually standing on the precipice of a revelation and always falling backwards on her ass. Um, and I mm. think more than ever, she really felt like she was on the precipice of that, 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 that revelation. And it feels so much like in Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings books where, you know, Eowyn and Faramir are high atop the tower, you know, looking out over the world literally ending. And, and Faramir is basically making this elevator pitch to Eowyn that is like, just because everything sucks and everything is horrible and the way that you have been taught to live is horrible does not mean it has to continue to be that way. And like, um, you know, <laughs> come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination or whatever the fuck. But like, you know, he makes this pitch and he says, look, I like, I, I, I will show you kindness because I want to show you kindness and because you are deserving of kindness. And Eowyn's response to that pitch is and, and I think it's really important to me that I get the word right, uh, the wording right. So, so, so her reaction in the book is, then the heart of Eowyn changed, 
or else at last she understood it. And if there's one thing that Shivroy is not doing, it is changing her heart or understanding her heart. And so to just see that, like, you know, and even if you get into the sort of, like, ridiculous, where, like, at the end of that scene in Lord of the Rings, like, Eowyn and Faramir come down from the steps, from the high steps, hand in hand, you will note that Eowyn does not fall on her fucking face, whereas Shiv comes down alone and falls on her fucking face. And there's so many of these, like, brilliant parallels where it's just this, like, dark universe version of, like, how can you possibly love someone if like, you know, not if you don't love yourself, like I think it's totally possible to love someone if you don't love yourself, but how can you truly love yourself and find healing and and have a true sense of emotional intimacy if you're not willing to look inwards on yourself and know yourself? And and Shiv is so resistant to that fact. And it's just, it is, it is so painful, I think, to put those two in, in kind of parallel with one another and see what could have possibly happened for Shiv if she weren't so committed to being wrong about everything oh that's great i i I would never have flagged that i didn't realize tolkien had his own version of fix your hearts or die the famous (laughs) david lynch quote but apparently he does uh before we finish up today i do want to give a little shout to david rashi who plays carl because this was a fucking amazing carl episode i love the like I know I've been calling them the vassals the last couple episodes, <laughs> but that whole Frank, Carolina, Carl, Jerry, like that little group of characters, Hugo even, um, I hate them, but I really, really love them. And Carl has so many good like one-liners and bits in this episode, him dressing down Tom saying, this is what they would theoretically say about you um, in terms of being you know, <laughs> potential CEO. Um, <laughs> when they find the letter and then Carl's like, well, what if this disappeared? Not actionable parody, kind of like, you know, just joking in a humorous vein, like the way him and Frank are shooting the shit. Or uh, what's there's one that he has later um, that I'm really forgetting. Ah, oh, Jesus, I wish I had it. Oh, I'm looking, is it in my notes? Sorry, I lost it. But please tell me about Carl. <laughs> um, so I think there's kind of been something like... Um, there's something to the vassal crew in that I think each episode, maybe not each episode, it's not like they're taking it in turns, but like for the past, like I would say six episodes, so inclusive of um, series three, um, they each kind of show that they are these distinct characters in a way that like a lesser show probably wouldn't let them do. Or or like, you know, they are, they are characters that are more interesting and, and actors that are more capable than just this kind of, um, archetype of secondary character might otherwise allow. And, and I think there's something like so human about like Carl's a potential insider trading scandal because there's nothing in what he did that the Roy siblings would not have done for themselves. But like the difference between the two of them is that Carl doesn't actually have the money on the same level, the power and money on the same level, and the Roy's do. And so it's insider trading for Carl and Carl's daughter, and it's it's just family business for the Roy's. And and like showing the kind of humanity of someone like Carl in, in that in such a way, in such like a moment of like perfectly human vulnerability. And you know, he even says, Oh, well, you know, I don't really talk to my daughter. Like, and that doesn't really change the fact that like, okay, he doesn't really talk to his daughter, but there is that vulnerability. There is that relationship there. There is that connection to humanity there that just, it it makes him weak because this isn't a game that humans play. Like the Roy's are not human beings anymore. They have totally forfeited their right to that label. And, you know, I think about like the, 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 the funniness of the fact that like, 
you know, when Roman goes to fire Jerry, nobody thought about the fact that she's a fucking lawyer. She's a fucking lawyer. Why are you, Roman Roy, going to fire the woman that you sent a picture of your dick to, who, oh, by the way, is a lawyer? Like, nobody thinks about these characters. None of the Roy Roys think about these these people in their lives as if they are independent people and not just pawns. And I think there is something really detrimental to their, like, fundamentally inhuman way of looking at people that, like, it may have worked with the Carl thing. Not sure how 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 this is going to play <laughs> with, like, Jerry or with any of these other people who are actually people who may have something else in their back pocket still. Yeah, um, I, I hate to do this, but I have to correct you. It was Hugo's daughter. Not Hugo, Carl's. Hugo, Hugo, you're right. Sorry, um, sorry, sorry. But um, I am also going to apologize. I got completely uh, scatterbrained like two minutes ago. Um, the bit that I really love from Carl was when they mentioned that uh, Logan has like secret impressionist paintings in his vault that possibly no one in the world has ever seen, like three Goggins or something. <laughs> um, I'm not really familiar with that artist, but then I think like either Shiv or Roman's like, can't we just light them on fire and get the insurance money? And then Carl just turns around and is like, yeah, that's the dream, financially speaking. <laughs> and I just like completely lost at that joke because yeah, it kind of is the dream. I mean, I would love to have valuable art, but I would love to turn that art into money um, and then take care of all the bullshit that I have going on in my life life yeah no i i feel you on that one and, and there's also like uh so the go like so paul gogan is the artist they're talking about and there's so much in there there's so much in there to like potentially talk about um but i think the thing for me that is kind of revealing is so like gogan is was it was an impressionist or maybe post-impressionist no impressionist uh painter and 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 um it, Impressionism is this genre that's really unique and not unique. I mean, certainly not unique, but it, but it's really interesting because of its relationship to like wealth and that like it was this kind of like truly bohemian um, um, genre in that um, it came largely after the age of patronage. And so it is it is the, the genre in which we see the artists who are working who are truly the poor starving artists. Um, and so many of the impressionists like died in poverty. Um, and, and this comes after the sort of um, the, the turn to capitalism in, in, in the industrial revolution. But before that artists, the artists that we remember at least um, were patronized by the wealthy. Um, and, and so their work was like literally explicitly informed by the, by the desires and interests of the wealthy and, and, and their livelihoods were funded by rich people directly. Like you would literally, if you were rich, you would just pay to have a, an artist in house. Um, the Impressionists were not that. They they lived this kind of truly bohemian, levy bohem, um, starving artist sort of life. Um, and so while they were sort of influenced by the desires of the rich, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis like romanticism as a whole and, and the kind of aristocratic kind of over-representation in, in romanticism, like these guys were just like doing what they wanted to do more or less um, and not really making much money for it. But then there was a kind of turn towards... Um, amongst the wealthy of of hoarding the work of the impressionists um and and of having that thing and it was because it was this kind of i don't want to call it innovation but it was this art form that came out of this sort of idealized notion of the suffering artist under capitalism and so many rich people love the aesthetics of that you know they don't they would never do that to themselves god forbid they ever not be rich but like they love to hoard that and i think the idea of of 
of Logan having that and, 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 and hoarding that. And then all of these other people just being like, well, just fucking set it on fire takes this like deeply visceral genre. That is, that is impressionism and the sort of lives of the impressionists, especially Paul Gauguin, who like really didn't receive any recognition for his stuff until he was long dead. Um, you know, there's, there's something in there about like the futility and like un unbeauty <laughs> ugliness of of the lives of the rich and the famous uh there's your fucking not billy joel not billy joel what's his name uh billy the F- jessica simpson's ex-husband damn it good charlotte man i can't remember uh, his bill, name. Li- joel madden is that the is it- okay yeah i would not have gotten that <laughs> Sorry, that was like a real kind of my brain broken half there for a second um but you know there's this whole like these people just trade the, them like pokemon cards and then like those freaks on tiktok just like burn them or light them on fire because what does it matter to them and and to pick an impressionist for that is so it's just so good like the show is just so thoughtful about the things that it does and and nothing is put anywhere in in this show without a reason no that's that's pretty much all i got um the last thing i want to say and this has nothing to do with this episode specifically but i've been trying to get it out the last four episodes <laughs> or last three episodes I just really love the musical transitions from the cold opens into the main title credits. Like I'm always just kind of on like edge waiting for either the bass beat or the, like the little keyboard notes to start tingling. So I know they're going to go into, and I felt like this one was very supoy because it was like that, uh, like smash close up on Shiv's face right after the phone call with her doctor. And then you slowly hear the music build up before it launches into the opening credits. It's always been a highlight of basically every episode that has a cold open, which I think is over 80 to 90% of the episodes. Um, so it's just something I always love. And I wanted to make sure I said at least once on this podcast. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, the credits of this as well, like the kids are now looking away from, you know, in the old film of the kids, mm-hmm. the video, uh, all of them lined up. They're all now looking at, at Logan who's walking away from them and it's just like it's so perfect it's so hokey like ostensibly if we lived in an era of an industry performing as an industry should like it would be just such an easy thing to do but we don't live in that era we live in an era of just shit the fucking mandalorian season three so instead we have to be really excited by these simple things like oh my god they've changed the credits to account for the fact that like the patriarch is dead um but you know it's 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 fantastic and i think also like um now that I am vanishingly more familiar with Nicholas Brittle's work, um, I think, you know, there's so much in here that, like, if he were not a good composer, could have just looked and felt and sounded like, um, sounded like the Coruscant stuff in Andor. Um, and they are to- so totally distinct because, you know, as a good composer should be able to do, they convey totally different things and are about totally different scenarios. But like, there is a very clear sense of this is a this is Nicholas Brittle's score in two different shows. And it's not like the Hans Zimmer bullshit where it's just the same, like, you know, weird kind of not weird. It's not weird anymore. It's just boring bullshit droning strings like discordant quote-unquote discordant like use of oh slightly edgy instruments that other people don't use except they've all been using it for 30 fucking years now um there's none of that in nicholas brittle stuff it's all this very fresh very like aware very like well deployed um music um and and refreshing very refreshing in in the age of we're gonna fire ludwig Gorenson and instead hire a guy who apparently has never done anything but watch star wars for 30 years <laughs> yeah no uh Brittell's, uh music even has just his main light motif in secession has been so malleable um because we've already heard it as kind of like this raw long waltzy string piece a couple episodes ago um and then 
it's it's a really cool theme because it has elements that are very classical, especially like the keyboard uh, melody. But then just like the heavy bass gives it that kind of modern, like it could be the backing to a mixtape that like some hip hop artist that I cannot possibly name would drop. <laughs> and that the fact that he can take it either or both ways at any given moment in an episode, um, this episode ends when it cuts to black for the credits with that like Kendall smiling at Hugo. And then it's a really like kind of up-tempo version of just the main light motif, just really like the main piano medley, um, but it just like at a tempo that's so much faster than anything we've ever heard. Um, and it really kind of just gets the juices flowing. Like I imagine when I rewatch the season, like the ending credits to this episode is just going to be like, let's fucking go and let's start binging episode five right away. Um, it just has that kind of energy to it. And I'm excited. I'm excited to listen to the show as much as I am to watch it and analyze it. Nice. Amazing. So before we sign off, we would like to thank a handful of our patrons. Just a reminder, at the 5 and $10 levels, Emily will give you a wonderful Middle Earth name that we will read out on air um, every episode for our $10 patrons and on a rotating basis for our $5 patrons. So, Emily, do you want to take this first one? Yes. Thank you, too. Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothamata Palenka. Thanks, Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungle. And Idranar of Kokarthad, a.k.a. Matty Hugh. Aranwo Minyatar, a.k.a. Matthew Abbott. Like Wilma, a.k.a. Zach Newman. Salquendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Toko Tanar, a.k.a. Jonathan Dahan. Eruanian Taranen, a.k.a. Matthias Henson. Ronessa, also known as Nick Smith. And Penemel, a.k.a. Munjil. And do you want to start us off with the five dollars? Yeah, yes, go do we it. Fucking got it. Um, and for our five dollar patrons, we would like to thank Scott. Scott, damn it, I did it every time. I can never make it through. <laughs> Scott, fuck, I'm sorry, Scott. This is for Scott Robo of the Cats on Deal, and I would like to point out that Cats on Deal is cat friend, <laughs> which also super works because Scott's cat is named Cato, so it's oh. embedded right into the name. Oh. You you did even better than you thought you did, Emily. <laughs> Hats off to you. And we'd also like to thank Zoe, a.k.a. Farrowin. That closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to these episodes, special bonus content, and plenty more. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be standing in the middle of the Roy Mansion going, hey, where's Comfrey? Where is Comfrey? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I actually don't need to see Dasha on the show again. But. <laughs> She's not getting vaccinated, that's for sure. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethroglier and Drithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, it's a rum situation and one in the eye for all of us. <laughs> what does that mean, Peter Munyon? <laughs>
If you got something, go with it, or else I'm going to ask you this question about Greg. <laughs> Let's go with that one. <laughs>